everybody. Welcome to The Afterword. I'm Dave Tish. And man, let me tell you, this week's episode of The Afterword is jam-packed. I mean, it is. It's just too much. It's like the serving size portions at the Cheesecake Factory. Just just too much. Just, just way too much. So we're excited about it. Let me tell you how this week's episode is going to go. First of all, we're in week two of Abraham, this series where we're examining Abraham's life. And this week, we take a look at how Abraham was at a dead end. He was at a dead end, spiritually, physically, uh, it was all bad. And then God comes and rescues him. Rescue me, or take me in your arms. And this is the whole point, that Abraham wasn't a great guy, that God's like, man, I'd like to partner with that guy. Together, we could really do something great. So first up, Jay Kim's going to come, and we're going to talk about how culture in general and Christians in specific sometimes uh, labor or work to try to get God's approval and favor, uh, try to earn things. This is bad, by the way. That's It's not good. And uh, how to get out of that. Then my good friend Sarah K. Lee stops by. We're going to have Bible nerd out time. We're going to talk about the story of Abraham and how it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 when God creates human beings in his image. We're going to talk about the term, the image of God, the Hebrew word selim, what it means, what it doesn't mean, and why it sheds light on the story of Abraham and why it's actually really good news for you and I. And then finally... If that wasn't enough content, most of you will probably stop there, but there's even more. I have my buddy Ben come on. Ben and his wife actually work as cross-cultural missionaries for an organization that does linguistics and Bible translation for people groups that don't have the Bible. Often this is in very sensitive areas of the world, so I can't reveal much more than that. But in that conversation, I asked Ben about the principles of Bible translation, and I asked him specifically, how important is it when a people group get the Bible for the first time? How important is historical data, historical context? Um, is it critical or sort of important? And so Ben starts to talk about that. He also gets into the philosophy of language, which I thought was fascinating because it helps us understand how we can understand the Bible better. And uh, it was just a fascinating conversation with a good friend. So uh, I tacked that on at the end for those who might be interested. Anyway, lots going on. So let's dive in. Welcome to the afterword here with my buddy Jay Kim. Hey everybody. Uh, so Jay, this past week, here's what I want to talk to you about. So this past week, we uh, we really delved into this idea that our friend Joshua Ryan Butler wrote a book on this idea of the pursuing God, right? Yeah. This idea that God uh, doesn't leave us where we are, and I think there is a concept that Abraham was like an awesome dude, and he was totally right with God, and everything was fantastic and god's like i'm going to choose that guy and then i'm going to write a really good story because that guy's a really good kind of guy and what we find in the story is kind of something different that he was steeped in pagan worship and it was yeah. basically a dead end and if god had not have come down it would have been continued to be a dead end yeah and that kind of idea that god's that good that gracious that comes and gets us um is all through christian theology it's actually part of the story of Christmas even. And I know it's weird talking about Christmas in September, but you know, it's part of that story, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So my question is um, in my, in the book, I kind of talk about my story, but 
just curious about you just personally, was there a moment or a series of moments when looking back on your life with God, where you felt like God really came to get you, where he rescued you, where he broke through history to find you uniquely you, Jacob? Yeah. I mean, I think everyone who uh, has a robust sort of alive dynamic relationship with God would say that they had that moment. And by moment, I don't, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean everybody had a Paul on the Damascus road. I saw a vision, heard a voice. Right. And for a lot of people, that moment is sort of gradual over many weeks, months, sometimes years, but there's definitely always, I think, a season or sometimes quite literally a moment uh, where that, that we can look back on and identify. Uh, we don't, you know, sometimes we don't think about it very often, but yeah, I think everyone's had, had that moment. And yeah, that's certainly true for me. I, I think for me, I can identify definitely particular, very specific moments, but also kind of season of life as well. You know, um, I distinctly remember uh, when I was like 12, being at a church camp and having a moment. And it wasn't, I had many moments of like Christian camp highs, you know, <laughs> like the, the emotional euphoria of just being in an environment or whatever. But when I was 12, I had, I think, what is a very distinct moment um, that I can still remember because it, you know, it was 30 years ago. And uh, I think it was connected to that same year um, or maybe it was right after something like that. I told a story in the sermon, you know, this Sunday about kind of feeling a real void in my life because of father wounds, where which are very common for people. And I have my own father wounds. And so I think all of that's kind of connected. You know, I had a real emptiness in my life. And then at this camp, that emptiness was it was filled in a way that it's hard for me to describe. But yeah, at a moment like that. And then in my very early 20s, uh, in college, I had a moment that for me was about six months. It was like a six month stretch of my life completely falling apart, finding myself at the end of myself. Yeah. And then at that place, discovering God's, um, you know, unrelenting love for me and his pursuit of me, you know, where, where it felt like God really came after me, had been coming after me for a long time, but really came after me and found me in a in a way that I responded to. And uh, that was in my early twenties, about 20 years ago. And I haven't turned back since. I mean, I, you know, still continue to struggle and sin and deal with my own junk, but in terms of the trajectory of my life, right. The last 20 years, since that moment in my early twenties, I've been at least trying my best to move in the direction of, of God. Yeah. That, that, that term, that phrase, I came to the end of myself. It's so common in these stories, right? Yeah. The, 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 this, I, I, the second question I have is pastorally, we talk about cigarettes a lot. Do you think yeah. that there are ways, and I'm gonna ask about culture and then I'm gonna ask you about Christians in particular. Do you think there's ways that our culture builds cigarettes? Cigarettes in the ancient world were these towering centers of the city that were meant to try to, I think it was to gain the favors of the God or perhaps, get some sort of help from the gods so that things would go well. 
um, yeah. a sense of certainty and an uncertain world, perhaps. Do you think there's yeah. ways that we culturally build, build ziggurats today? Yeah, absolutely. I like I like the way you said it at the end there. You know, maybe it's a form of trying to build certainty in an uncertain world. I think that's accurate for the ancient world. And I think it's just as accurate today. You know, they built these towers thousands of years ago in ancient Mesopotamia because everything was uncertain. And what they meant by that was quite literally, they didn't know if it was going to rain. And if it didn't rain, their crops wouldn't grow. And if their crops didn't grow, they wouldn't have food to eat and to feed their animals for livestock, for meat, and you know, just on and on. And so their belief was, well, we're uncertain if it's going to rain, which means this could lead to our death and demise, you know? Right. So let's try to do something, something we control to attain a certain level of certainty. And what they came to was that there were gods who controlled the waters that fell from the skies. And so to appease those gods, to please those gods, to earn those gods favor, they would build these towers at the top of which there were these temples, these sort of resting places, and they would offer ritual sacrifices and worship to the pagan gods in hopes that these gods would come down and bless them with rain. And that goes on and on with a variety of other things that we're uncertain about. And that sounds so foreign and archaic and barbaric to us, but we do the same exact thing today, you know, except our centers of worship just look different. You know, borrowing from the writer James Smith, our centers of worship look like the shopping mall, you know, and uh, we go and we make sacrifices uh, and they're not goats and sheep and birds they're you know credit cards and money and you right, know right. transactions and and uh and then we attain these sorts of trinkets that we think will bring certainty to our uncertain lives so we're uncertain if our lives have any meaning or purpose we're uncertain about our own significance we're uncertain about our identity or the reason why we're on the planet and so we worship at the altar of these gods and we offer them the sacrifice of our money and our time and our energy. And we get these little trinkets that we think will satisfy that uncertainty and help us feel like there's meaning and purpose. Uh, you know, help us feel like if we have the right things, have the right clothes, the right car, the right house, the right spouse, the right kids, whatever, that it'll sort of craft a life that is worth living. And those are ziggurats. Those are towers. Those are worshiping towers we build and altars we build to the gods of, uh, you know, our day. And so I, I don't, I don't think much has changed. You know, we still yeah. worship at altars. It's just those altars, those ziggurats, those towers look different, but um, human beings are still bowing down to, to pagan gods. And uh, yeah, even for Christians, that's true. You know, you would yeah. think, you would hope it'd be different, but it's not, you know, I'm tempted to worship at the altars of, of false gods all the time. Um, so, yeah. So let me ask you a question about Christians, because um, specifically, there's a quote, we've probably said this a hundred times, um, and it's a famous Dallas Willard quote. It's got, a grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Yeah. But grace is opposed to earning. Yes. So it, it that's that's not what grace is. That's not what God's asking us. So 
my question is, how have you seen in your time pastorally, both with youth, young adults, young marrieds, and adults, how do we go about trying to earn God's attention, his, our security with him? Because this seems to be, like Martin Luther famously said, that religion is the default setting of the human heart. Um, mm. He didn't say default setting because he wouldn't have known what a default <laughs> setting is, but I'm paraphrasing Martin Luther that basically it's, it's the, the, the it's, that's what it is. Religion is actually built in, baked into the human experience. And religion is trying to do follow the rules in order to make God happy. How have you seen, yeah. how have you seen earning in Christians? Because I think if we recognize it, then we can begin to get free from it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that the propensity to believe the myth that, uh, God's love, God's favor, his grace is something to be earned. It typically flows in two directions. I think one, it flows in the direction of fear. So often, you know, Christians will um, make a mistake or they'll fall off the wagon, whatever their particular, uh, you know, troubling addiction or darkness might be. And then we're struck with fear that now, because I made a mistake, because I faltered, God will remove his favor from my life. And some of that is, it's not completely untrue. I, I think in particular, when it comes to spiritual leadership, I think that, uh, you know, when spiritual leaders, Christians who are called to lead a particular, serve and steward and lead a particular group of people, when they knowingly, intentionally continue to move in the direction of a particular sin in their life, I do think there's biblical precedent for the fact that God will remove his favor upon that person to lead. You know, the Bible's pretty clear that those who uh, take up the mantle of teaching and leading, you know, will be judged more harshly. There's, there's realities like that. But aside from that, I think oftentimes when it comes to you know, the way Christians wrestle with uh, the reality of sin in our lives and the reality that we live in the now and not yet, you know, that we are saved now, but we have yet to see the full culmination of the new heavens and the new earth and fully redeemed bodies and motives and intentions. You know, living in this tension, sometimes this concept that we have to earn God's favor, we have to earn his grace, his love, seeps into this sort of fear mentality that if I'm not picture perfect, that if I don't dot all the I's and cross all the T's and live the perfect Christian life, then God's going to be angry at me. He's going to turn his back toward me. Um, so I think that happens a lot. And Christians end up living in fear because we misunderstand what grace really is, which is God's unending, relentless, you know, um, just aggressive pursuit uh, of us in love. And, uh, and on the, on the flip side, I think that it moves in the direction of, I guess, what would traditionally classically be called like, like health and wealth, you know, gospel. And that's kind of a, that minimizes it a bit, but it's, it's a helpful paradigm um, by health and wealth here, I, I don't mean just like the televangelists who are like, send me $50 and I'll send you a vial of healing water from Jerusalem or something. 
although it includes that for sure. I just mean the general ethos of health and wealth gospel, which essentially says, if you do X, Y, and Z, that will lead to God's blessings in these particular ways. And most of us, I think most of us listening to this would say adamantly, well, I don't buy into that sort of theology. Mm. I don't give money to the health and wealth televangelists that are on TV at 2 a.m. on local cable television. But we do find ourselves sort of creeping toward that uh, understanding of grace in the way that we think about, um, for example, the way prayer works. We most often think about prayer as transactional. If I pray these particular prayers, then my expectation is that God will give me these particular things. Right. If I uh, give money to the church faithfully, you know, in this particular way, then God will financially bless me and take care of me in these particular ways. But what life reveals to us is like that it's not transactional. It doesn't work that way. Um, you know, there's that beautiful psalm that tells us that if you delight in the Lord, God will give you the desires of your heart. And we forget that that verse begins, if you delight in the Lord, then God will, you know, and what's interesting about that is what it means is if the deepest desire of your heart is the Lord, then God will give you himself. And um, that's grace is in, in that no matter what life circumstances may look like, God himself has already given himself to us. And the goal is not to... Uh, achieve a particular transactional relationship with God where we give particular things and receive particular things. The goal of the Christian life is to reform our hearts and minds so that the deepest longing of our hearts and minds um, is God himself, that, that we long for God, become the sort of people who long for God more than anything or anyone else. And if we can become those sorts of people, then we have him. We yeah. have the thing that we long for, the one we long for the most. That's so good. And then That's everything so else falls into place, you know? So, yeah, I'm sure there's other ways, but those are a couple of the ways I see that sort of mentality sort of creep in uh, with Christians. Yeah. And and I think the, the story of Abraham, which, of course, I think points to Jesus, is so helpful here because it reveals that I didn't do, Abraham didn't do anything. He didn't deserve yeah. it. He wasn't living an incredibly virtuous life and God came and got him. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. It's pretty incredible. It's, it's really amazing. I mean, we, we read, we project snippets of Abraham's story onto his story, but we talked about it. You and I talked about it this Sunday. It's like the story doesn't do that. The Bible itself doesn't do that. The Bible itself basically is like, here's Abraham. He lived in a pagan culture with a pagan family and then God came to him and said, hey, Abram, you know what I mean? Like Abram yeah. didn't do anything. Yeah. Like, he, didn't, he didn't build the right tower or the right ziggurat that Yahweh liked. And then Yahweh was like, oh, this guy, he built the right thing. That's not what happens, you know? Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I find that fascinating for sure. Yeah. Final question. Okay. So at the, as we went through this chapter, as we go through this, this message this this opening overture of Abraham's life. Here's my question to you: If you had to name this sermon after a '90s hip hop song, would you rather title it "Straight Out of Chaldea" or 
make them say er er na 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 which one is better in in your estimation i would probably call it i love it when you call me big yahweh <laughs> and that ladies and gentlemen is the correct answer <laughs> all right thanks jay thanks for your time man yeah thank you guys i'll talk to you soon All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Afterword. I'm here with Sarah K. Lee for week two of Bible Nerd Out Time. Uh, Sarah, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay. So today you wanted to talk a little bit about this moment in the sermon that we didn't get a chance to get to. Um, and you wanted to talk about this idea that Abraham, that Abraham was steeped in pagan culture. Yeah. But you wanted to go back in the story back in Genesis, because we're only in Genesis 11 and 12, right? At this point, when we enter into Abraham's story, you wanted to go back and actually go back in the story to show why that's such a tragic thing. So take us back a little bit. And why, why did that jump out at you? Yeah, so starting back in Genesis 1, there's a really special term that God used when he created man and woman. And it's the image of God. It's the selim. And there's a Hebrew word. That's the Hebrew word. And we have a QR code in the book on page 41 to go to the Bible Project and check out their video. They can learn a whole bunch more about this. Um, so God had told, had said, that let's make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the birds and the animals. And then he created mankind, humankind in his own image and the image of God. He created them male and female. He created them. So yeah, it just, it was a really big part of the chapter in the book and it didn't make it into the sermon. So I right, wanted to right. make sure that we talk about it. Right. Absolutely. So what does this term selim, um, which is the Hebrew word, which is translated the image of God. Mm -hmm. Theologians have kind of wrestled and battled with this for a while. What exactly does it mean to for humans to be made in the image of God, it, every person I think has a moment where they, they they understand this to be deeply true. You're driving a, a cat or a dog darts out in front of your car. You swerve and there's a child there, and you have a choice: do you hit the child or the dog? Or or you know there, there's this there's that's it's no brainer. Like you, you're going <laughs> to swerve and hit the animal. It's as tragic as that is. It, it doesn't, there's no, there's no even scale there. It's not, it doesn't even make sense. Or there's a child and then there's a tree. You're going to hit the tree. The tree doesn't have the image of God in a way like we the instinctively value. know, or the value. We, we know this. What does image of God or as we look at this word, selim, what insights can we gain from scripture about what this word even means? Yeah. And this is where scripture actually doesn't say a whole lot. And so theologians over centuries, millennia have been wrestling with this. What does it mean? That is the question. And I think we have to tread really lightly here and stay open-minded and stay humble when we try to define it. And so, um, but as you mentioned in the book, like if there is function that is related to this word that the humans are to rule over the animals and over creation or to be good stewards, to have responsibility. Um, right. Kind of so there's, there's a sense of exercising dominion. There's a functional role that's given to humans that's not given to the other created beings and animals, right? Okay. Yeah. Also, it's it's 
it's not individual it's corporate it's Ooh. both male and female ah right? yeah there's a community built in yeah yeah i think it is we have to be careful to say like i sarah am the image of god yes and no because as a community like and it's not just a church community at this point it's all of humanity oh i see yeah are all humans are the image of god they are given the image of God. So it's both and. I individually have been made in the image of God. So every human is imbued with it, but that we yes. as humans reflect the image of God, which is the male femaleness of it. Right. Mm -hmm. um, that's good. That's good. There's also some, there's, yeah, go ahead. Keep going. Sorry. Sure. Reflect and embody. That's, I think, maybe where you're going next. That's good. Is that, yeah, it's, it is a physical, um, substantial image. Right. Yet, yet, when you say reflect, you're talking about uh, kind of metaphorical representing, kind of like the light of the world. But um, so there's a that's the theology of it, right? That it's not just logic and reasoning and um, biology. It's there's so much more to it. Right. There's a sense in which humans have a capacity for being in relationship with Yahweh, the creator God, in a way somehow that animals don't. We have an awareness of our creator in a way that um, perhaps animals don't. Uh, and, and there's certainly this kind of priestly role that's given where we are to, I think the words in Genesis are to work and keep, yeah. which are always used in... Together. It, it always used together and are always used like in a priestly or temple context. So there's this relational dynamic which, it makes, which is interesting because sometimes in the modern world, I was always taught that the thing that makes us the image of God is our ability to think it's our rational thought. And you're saying it's actually way bigger than that. It's, okay. it's much more, or it, the, the Bible kind of paints a much broader picture both of the corporateness, the functional, the substantial, the representational, the relational that there's yeah. all these different elements or, or ideas about what it means to be the image of God. And that if we just only elevate the rational, we lose some core things. Uh, uh, is that kind of how you see it? Yeah, that's what it seems to be that we've overemphasized the function perhaps and underemphasized, I think mostly the relationship and in doing so we're at danger of idolizing the function. And mm. so we just, it's a warning. We have to be careful. Well, that. also, it does seem like if you just look at the ways that we're fundamentally different than the animals, you can arrive at those conclusions by science. But the representation, what we're meant for relationally, you can't arrive at that as science. You need theology. So right, right. the idea that the Bible has to inform this, that's a, that's an important thing. Okay, so. Yeah, and if, oh, go ahead. No, I'm not, you, you talk. If you want to do like a really deep dive and go oh, yes. nerd, out, nerd out some more go over to the BioLogos podcast. It's called Language of God. And they had an episode recently that concluded a series called Uniquely Unique, where they're talking about what does it mean to be human. And so episode 87, it was from August 26, 2021, on the image of God. So pretty recently, just a couple of weeks yeah. ago. Yeah, it was really timely. That's, That's fantastic. right there. Now, for folks that don't know, BioLogos is an organization that seeks to explore Christianity and science together. Yes. Um, it was founded by a guy by the name of Francis Collins, mm -hmm. who did the Human Genome Project. And you, as a, a former geneticist, have a have a have a, a soft spot in your heart for people who merge science, uh, especially genetics and theology. So, um, right. 
Okay, that's awesome. Okay, so now here's my question though. Why did you take us back to Genesis when you're talking about Abraham being caught in idolatry? Why is that important to understand? Because ever since the humans left the garden, we're just always waiting. We want humans to be in right relationship with God. We want them to like fully embrace this this image of God. Um, and so as the story moves up forward, we there's Noah's story, and we're told that he was a righteous man, blameless among the people, and he walked faithfully with God. So it seems like maybe he's the Selah. Maybe he's going to be the one that will be the partner with God that the way that God wanted it to work right, the faithful the garden. partner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then, and it's, he, it is good. And, and actually God rescues him and puts him on an ark with his family, but then it goes bad. Yeah. And so we're just, we keep reading, you know, with every story afterward, we're, we keep looking for more humans who will hopefully rise to the occasion. Well, cause they, every generation has a choice and they have agency to walk with God, to um, embody and partner with him. As a Selim, the idea that God's looking for faithful covenant partners and has been since the beginning. And the fact that Abraham's family is from Noah's family is they're from the family that knew Yahweh. And yet here they are enmeshed in idol worship of pagan gods. And so it's it's doubly tragic because they're supposed to be the Selim. They're supposed to be in this right relationship and they're not. And so that's, that's the tragedy. Now that's interesting. You said that everyone has a choice. Sometimes when I, I went early on in my Christian life, I would hear people say things like, um, I can do nothing good. I'm, I'm a worm. I deserve nothing but damnation. The only thing I deserve is hell. This idea that humans are all bad, rotten to the core, corrupted to the, to the essence. And this, I think this comes from the idea of the fall. But you're saying that that actually is overshooting the theology that we're given in the Bible. Yes. Even though Adam and Eve sinned and they made a mistake and God has, you know, there's a new normal after that where the environment is cursed. So here's what's interesting is that who's cursed in Genesis 3? The snake and the ground, who's not cursed? The humans. So there is still potential for every generation to make a choice. To make, mm-hmm. and, but from now on, the new normal is going to be mixture. And so I think that's where, for me, it's been helpful to just have a low anthropology that, yeah, we're going to make mistakes, but there's always the opportunity to do good and bad, but we can do good. And that's good news. We can... We can partner with God and actually labor with him. Now, of course, that's imperfect. But later on in the story, uh, you know, the problem that the the authors say is this mixture of good and bad. I hate it. I hate this mixture. I hate that my heart is of stone. I hate that I'm uh, I have all these corrupted desires. And of course, the prophets come along and say, eventually, God will take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. And then the Holy Spirit can come and actually begin to help change us into faithful Selim, faithful covenant partners. And that's really inspiring. 
so that's 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 fascinating that humans we see it i mean the spirit i you know we have to remember the trinity is so complex and we're not going to go into that right now but we should also just imagine the trinity you know god the father son and spirit when we read these stories in the old testament of god meeting people like in their sin and brokenness and he continues to partner with these people and to work through them and in them in the same way that he does with abraham he can do with us exactly so we actually can take steps to be more faithful covenant partners today than we were yesterday and with god's help become even more and more so so that's a neat question behind what does it mean to be human what does it mean to be maybe the question behind it is what does it mean to be a good human think more about that not just what does it mean to be a human but what does it mean to be a good human well you're a good human sarah kaylee so thank you for uh partnering with us and uh thank you for um for your time here yeah you're welcome all right well just want to say thanks to Jay and Sarah for stopping by. Be sure and join us next week when we're in week three of our Abraham series. And if you're interested, stick around for my interview with linguistic scholar Ben. And uh, that's coming up right after this. If not, we'll see you next week. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Afterword. <laughs> I'm here with my friend Ben. Uh, I can't use Ben's last name. I can't tell you where Ben is from or where Ben lives or what organization Ben works with. <laughs> so what a great intro. <laughs> hey, everybody. Okay, so I want to explain why I can't do that. You work for an organization in sensitive areas doing sensitive work. And so and the sensitive work that you do is around linguistics and Bible translation. So you want to at least try to explain to the people a little bit more about that and the work that you do? Yeah, exactly. Happy to. So, uh, yeah, my family and I uh, work in an international organization. We work cross-culturally um, doing language-based ministries. Um, it's in our hearts to see uh, marginalized and minority people groups around the world flourishing using their own languages um, we think this is a really incarnational ministry, a way that Jesus comes to be real and present among a new uh, language community. Um, and that involves a lot of uh, linguistic work, a lot of language development. By that, I mean like education and literacy kind of work. Um, and of course, Bible translation, because that's what we're passionate about. Now, you have you and your wife both do this work, which is really interesting that two linguists walked in and got... I mean, it's incredible, really, if you think about it, that you and your both are both... You and your wife are both passionate about linguistics. What are the chances? Well, we, we met in high school, and so uh, we got married, and then we sort of chose this ministry oh, to I get see. going I forward. See. Yeah. But you both uh, both have college degrees, not just in linguistics, but also you have your master's degree, and also have your master's degrees in advanced degrees in theology. Yeah, uh, not quite theology. Yeah, we did our graduate studies... Um, at an institution that was able to give us a kind of half and half degree, where half of it was applied linguistics, uh, principle of translation, uh, how language works, uh, how to do translation, uh, and the other half was a seminary degree, learning about the Bible, how to uh, understand the text, how to use the text, um, and it was a, a really cool, a really cool um, 
degree. Really cool study. Right. Now, I'm not allowed to say where you work, but you support a variety of language translation projects across a, a certain continent or a series of continents. <laughs> yeah. So here's what I like to do. I'm going to just name a continent, and if I'm... <laughs> And if I'm if I'm close, you say hotter or cold. Okay. Antarctica. <laughs> oh, on the money. That's it. Yeah, we're translating into penguin these days. You know the differences between emperor penguin and uh, the black strap chin penguin. It's really it's really it's very okay. fine distinctions in the gospel. Oh my. Okay. Anyways, what I, what I would hope to bring to you and uh, and to everyone else listening today is a really is a really kind of broad perspective because we've got uh, projects going on all around the world, sure. not just the ones that my wife and I. Uh, help to 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 do um, so. Uh, I think there can be a really a really healthy and helpful perspective uh, from from the field of Bible translation, from the field of linguistics. Sure. that I think would be uh, really helpful for your audience. Now, now here's here's why I invited you on. First of all, any chance I have just to sit down and talk with you is always awesome. I love you too, man. We, we've been friends for a long time. So my question to you is: um, I started off this book um, kind of with a fun intro, but then chapter. Two starts delving into the story of Abraham. Yeah. And in order to get into it, I did a little bit of history. Yeah. I talked about the location of where Abraham was. I talked about ancient Samaria, uh-huh. Mesopotamia. Yeah. I talked about geography, some history. I pulled some stuff out. Yeah. Cool just, stuff. A, just a brief kind of primer. My question to you is, is, was that necessary? Because one of the things that's interesting to me is some folks say, listen, that historical stuff, yeah. it's not actually that necessary. Right. Um, all the stuff that you need is actually in the biblical text. Just go right to the story, Dave. It's all contained there. And in fact, the more you do history, the more you take away from the biblical text, which Mm -hmm. is the source of authority. Mm -hmm. And it kind of makes it seem as though in order to understand this story of Abraham, you got to understand a lot of history. And if you don't have access to it, then you as a reader don't know the real story. And it also shifts the location of authority and meaning away from the Bible text into history. Right, right. And um, there's a lot of theologians. One of the ones that I'm thinking of is a guy named John Selhammer. Yeah. Who kind of famously kind of held up in a number of his books that this kind of historical backstory, although important because the Bible is historical, Mm -hmm. is actually just not even necessary. Right, right. So as a guy who works in Bible translation... Is this, is this needed? Is it helpful? Is it not? Like, for example, Salhammer would even say things like, I don't even want to go visit the Holy Land. Right, right. Because it'll put in my mind uh-huh. ideas and images yeah. that, that the Bible doesn't even want me to have. And so it's yeah. not even, it, it will actually cloud my judgment. Yeah. So Salhammer would say things like, the Bible is not about the story. It's not a window into history. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not like the story. Let's just take the story of uh, Abraham and Isaac because that's one of the ones we're going to talk about later. If you and I were to somehow be transported in a DeLorean back to <laughs> the moment of Abraham and two Isaac, great stop, Marty. <laughs> if we could somehow be translated back, the the meaning. If we could see that event with our own eyes, yeah. that that actually isn't the inspired. It wouldn't be helpful. It wouldn't be helpful because what's helpful is not the historical event. Yeah. It's what the authors yeah. tell us, yeah. how they interpret and show us the event. Yeah. And so it's not just not, not to say that that uh, historical event is not important. It's real. It's yeah. true. Mm-hmm. But it's not that the Bible is just a window into God's real acts. Yeah. That the Bible itself is an act yeah. of God himself in the way that he gives it to us, which is the text. And so the, the meaning is in the text, not yeah. in the event. So... 
it's a little nuanced, but as you interact yeah. with that, is, is, is history helpful? How helpful is history? Like yeah, these are great questions. So let me jump in. Let me jump in and say that I think Selhammer is providing a really, a really valuable and helpful corrective to the way that a lot of our brothers and sisters kind of accidentally view the text. Yeah. The, the, the purpose of the Bible, um, what, it's, what it's good for, what it's meant for, what it means for the Bible to be true. I think um, a, a, a lot of uh, evangelical American Christians today um, have, uh, have ideas about those things which they've kind of inherited or kind of accidentally come upon without really picking it apart. And I think Selhammer is encouraging us to pick that apart in a really in a really healthy way, what I what I like that he focuses on is um, that the 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 use of scripture to us is what the author is trying to tell us. That's that's why we say the Bible is inspired because the author or authors of scripture are trying to convey to us ideas about God that God himself wants for us to understand about himself and the way that he works in the world and the way that he works in our lives. And so for us to have that as our primary focus, what is the author trying to tell me is a, is a very different but very distinct question from what does this event teach me? Ah, uh, yes. As a, So one's like, hey, what happened? The other is... How was the story told to me, yeah. and what lessons yeah. can I glean from yeah. it? Yeah. Because when we take when we take that um, when we take that direction of of what does this event have to teach me, mm-hmm. then we find ourselves sort of accidentally sidetracked um, by by uh, certain ideas of how language works, certain ideas of what it means for something to be historically accurate, certain ideas of um, how it is that we uh, use and interpret the Bible. Um, and so it's it's helpful to to re to refocus us to remind us that there was an author who actually wrote these things down, and that author had some things in mind to tell us. And our task is to figure out what it is that author was trying to tell us. What was it that that author or authors were trying to communicate to us? What ideas yeah. were they trying to draw us towards a better understanding of God? Now, there's a couple there's a couple words that linguistics folks like yourself and your wife use. One of the words is exegesis. The other word is hermeneutics. Yeah. Can you give us just a brief... I, I know that that's, that might be like high level, but it's actually kind of important here. Yeah, so and, talk, and I think kind of fun. Yeah, sure. So talk to me about that. <laughs> yeah, so exegesis is kind of the word we use in linguistics, uh, which means uh, getting meaning out of the text. Mm-hmm. Under, understanding it what, is it, what does it say, and how is it saying it, so what does it mean? Um, and that can happen. And we do exegesis when we open the Bible every single day. We do exegesis when we read a text open, message. When we open the newspaper, yeah. When we read a text message from a friend, um, we're doing exegesis all the time. Yeah. Um, what you most often hear about from pastors and teachers is hermeneutics, because the, because pastors and teachers have a slightly different role here. They're 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 helping us to understand not just what does the text say, but they're trying to help us figure out. What does it mean for us today? How does how are we to receive this? How is this to impact our lives? Right, and then we move on even further to sort of application. Sure. Um, so, exegesis is an attempt to be very objective, and in in this attempt, it's got a whole lot of scientific checks and balances, you know, repeatable uh, uh, experiments to to figure out what a text means to to rationally process it. Um, and then hermeneutics. You and I might you and I might agree 
on the exegesis. We might agree on what the text means, but then we might have a whole different take on what it means for us today, oh, if that yes, makes sense. Yes, yes. Yeah. And oftentimes in, in, in church uh, cultures, uh, on, a, on a Sunday morning sermon or in a small group Bible study, we're mostly doing hermeneutics. Yeah. We're mostly trying to figure out how does this supposed to impact our lives? What does this mean for us? Mm-hmm. And we're trusting that the translators or the study Bible, or in your case, the devotional materials that, that we're going over, that they've done good exegesis. And so I think it's good that we're bringing this up at the beginning of this new study on Abraham. Has, have, have we understood what this text means well? Yeah. So you're saying that, that one of the, the core things to approaching any text is asking the question, what is the author trying to communicate here? And usually about God. Yeah. Usually about what God's about. Yeah. Um, what's interesting here, uh, if I could get into sort of some of the theory of how language works. Yeah. Um, because I think Selhammer, while he provides this helpful corrective um, uh, to, to, help us, to help us think about what is it the author means... Um, I think he accidentally overshoots uh, and and places a whole burden on the actual words of, in this case, Genesis, on the words of Genesis to communicate fully, completely, accurately what it is the author was trying to say. What else is he supposed to put emphasis on? Well... I mean, that's all we're given, right? It's based on the view that the the text itself, the expression, or... In my case, since I'm a linguist, I'm talking about communication between you and I. The words that you and I are, are speaking to each other across yes. the microphone now. Uh-huh. Um, those don't just arrive in your head as a, as a full and complete picture that had been in my head. So you're saying you can't telepathically communicate to me. Right. So, think, so no. most people think of language working this way. I have an idea in my head. Right. I encode it somehow into words. I Sound audible, that zip, right? Yeah, comes out my mouth, just like that. Yeah, it goes into your ears, and then your brain somehow decodes, decodes it. Yeah, decodes the words back into their meaning. Ah, uh, and that's not that's uh, that's not really how ideas work, right? Like like the idea in my head is almost certainly almost every time going to be different from the idea in your head. If, even if we're picturing something mostly the same, so very the, basic. the cat is in the chair. Right. So I picture the cat in the chair. You picture the cat in so the chair. So you're saying, I, now I have, a, I have a black and white cat. You have a brown cat. What, I mean, it's so... And that may, that may seem insubstantial, but it's significant that the idea hasn't been somehow put into a, a conduit. It, language is not a conduit for meaning. It's not the way to get meaning from my head into your head. What is language then? So the way language actually works involves sympathy. The way language works is that when you hear the words that are coming out of my mouth, it, it sort of stokes in your heart and in your mind um, the, same, the same experience that you might have, the same idea that you might have in your head if you were to say those same words. So it's a bit imaginative. So, it's a bit sympathetic. Oh, interesting. So if you were to say, I'm really cold right now, I would say, oh, if I said I'm really cold right now, here's what I would have been experiencing and here's why I would have said it and here's the scenario or the situation where I would have said that. And then I import onto that language packet yeah. 
my own personal experiences of that. So what happens yeah, or if not I, just your experiences, but your own imagination, right? Uh, yeah. You have you have reformed the idea in your own head. But and in that case, that that might actually be I could understand it pretty quickly, or I might understand what you mean pretty yeah. quickly. But, but what if I've never been cold? What if I'm from a tropical nation, from <laughs> or I've always lived in Hawaii and I've never been cold? Well, then that's where we need a whole lot more than just one sentence. We need to sure. we need to describe something of our context to each other. We sure. need to get into each other's lives. We need to understand mm-hmm. each other a little bit better in order to understand what what we mean. And in mo- in most cases, this is language learning. Right. right. You go to another you go to another place, another country, another culture. They speak a different language. Yeah. You may have a lot of the same experiences. But learning how to translate that into a sympathy for these words right. is, is quite different. And here's, here's the key that I, want, that I want sort of our brothers and sisters to understand. Uh-huh. Um, what I think Selhammer is overloading onto the text is that the text, is that the words mean enough. Because words don't mean anything. Words don't contain meaning. Words don't have meaning. Words don't embody Meaning as though as though they're packets uh-huh. of 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 idea units. People mean something. An author means something. And then he uses a, words. A speaker means something. And he uses words as and a, he well maybe we could say he or ex- she he or she expresses him or herself with words, and you and I, upon upon receiving that text or upon receiving that speech. We can sympathize in a way that, based, based on our imagination or our experience, we know what we would have thought for those words to come out of our mouth. And so that's how we end up grasping what the author meant. Not because the words mean something, but because the author means something. And this gets, so this gets us back to where I think Salehammer is going in the right direction, is redirecting us towards the author. What is the author trying to tell us? Hmm. And that's a valuable question. That's the most valuable question. Right. So when, when you guys are doing Bible translation and you're looking at these kinds of things, you're trying to say, but, but that could, you're saying that that could change in a culture. For example, um, sometimes the words that are used have to shift and change to adequately describe meaning. Yeah, like um, it's, it's well-known, well-documented languages, languages change sure. over time. Uh, the way that people use words shifts. Like in the King James Version of the Bible, the word for love, right. agape, yeah. this kind of big, vast, expansive word for love, yeah. Yeah, is huge. translated as charity. Right. And that word does not mean the same. Well, that's not how we use that that's word not how, That's not how we use So yeah. the idea is that 400 years ago, in Elizabethan language, uh-huh. or that that word does not mean what it means. So yeah. now we would use like love or agape yeah. or... Um, unconditional love. Yeah. You, you could make all sorts of different. And this things. is this is the kind of fun thing that linguists do. It drives my kids nuts, right? My kids, they love reading. My kids are in grade school. They're they're avid readers. They're reading all the time. They come across a new word. Hey, daddy, what does this word mean? And what do you and, say? As a linguist, you're like, it means nothing. It's just a collection of random yeah. scribbles. No, my, my first question to them is always, do you want me to tell you what the dictionary says, or do you want me to tell you how people use this word? Oh, because the way people use words is is what we mean when we say this word means something. Can I, can I give you another example that yeah. just came to mind? There, when we were kids growing up, we watched a, a cartoon called The Flintstones. Yeah. And The Flintstones theme song... I'm afraid where you're going at, with Well, this. at the end, it says, 
We'll have a gay old, we'll have a gay old, we'll have a gay old time. Yeah. The word gay meant happy in 1960 yeah. when the Flintstones were on. Yeah. That word has dramatically shifted yeah. in terms of what it means now. Yeah. And so... In, in the way it's, in how it's used. In how it's used. Yeah. Right. So there, there's a sense in which... Ling- so because... So this is going to make some people really uncomfortable. Yes. Because it sounds like you're saying there's no relative truth behind words. That, yeah. That cold doesn't mean cold and hot doesn't mean hot and... You know that that that's yeah, and not it is. It's super. It's super uncomfortable. Um, this makes me think of uh, during our training, since it was half scientific, applied linguistics, and half seminary theology yeah. Bible. Uh-huh. Um, what all of us, uh, what all of us had in common is um, a shared, uh, a shared priority. What what we would call a high view of Scripture. Yes. Um, what's what's in that that Scripture is important is authoritative is the word of god trustworthy yeah for our christian living yes but often what i encountered was that my my seminary brothers and sisters who are going into ministry who are going to be pastors who are going to be teachers they see they what they mean when they say high view of scripture is that this text must be preserved it must be defended it must be um carefully protected and delivered with uh, precise, accurate um, <laughs> teaching. So they tended to um, latch on to the words and what those words mean and how those words mean. Sometimes even the translation of those words? Yeah. Like the particular translation in English of those particular words. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, that's, and, that's, and you get all sorts of fun dialogue sure. around churches or Bible studies. Which version are you using sure. and why? Um, if you ask a Bible translator which version is the best, we'll always tell you it depends on what you're using it for. Huh. What do you um, mean by that? Uh, do you, if, if you want something that's more readable for your daily devotions, then you should probably choose a certain translation. That's uh, a readable. Version. Yeah. If you want to dive into some of the, the context of Scripture, some of the um, lesser known um, uh, words of Scripture mm-hmm. and, and their context and come to a fuller understanding of those, then you want like a study Bible. Or something right. like that. So different yeah. different versions have different pros and cons. Um, but back to sort of back to the seminary versus yeah. linguistic studies. A, a different view that my linguistics uh, colleagues have when they when they say a high view of scripture, what they mean is the ideas in this text that what the author was trying to communicate to us in this text is um, miraculous is God breathed is God breathed yeah. it's, it's, it's how we it's how we understand God this is God's self-revelation to us mm-hmm. what it means is the primary thing the words we use to communicate it we can we can figure that out we can that's a creative poetic process not scientific you're saying it's a, the, the words we use the way language works yeah. is very culturally bound is very yeah. sort of, it's based on your experience it's based on your time and place and history yeah. the words you use to convey those thoughts are variable hmm. and it's important that we allow those words variation in order to track the idea more consistently, more accurately. The meaning. Yeah. The, the meaning. Yeah. That, <clears throat> that's a linguistic deep dive. So yeah. what would you say are... So you're saying, like, for example, in the, in the book, one of the things we talk about 
in this chapter is that God moves first. He intervenes yeah. in human history. Yeah. And that Abraham's at a dead end. Yeah. And there's no power for him to recreate his future. And God inserts himself into human history and then reveals himself to yeah. Abraham. That that concept of God moving first being a pursuing God, not that we have to climb some sort of tower. Yeah. That that is one of the primary ideas yeah. that has to be maintained. So, I, yeah, that has to be maintained. I like the way you say that. So, yeah, I agree with you exactly. Like, I think you've captured really well, like, the, the big picture of the book of Genesis, the big picture of the story of the life of Abraham teaches us exactly those things. And I think um, whatever historical background we need, whatever um, hmm. archaeology and science that we need to help us better understand that idea, we should do that. That's good and that's right. But if we're but that's but if we're reading this text in order to discover the most historically accurate thing, in order to discover some scientific truths, in order to um, or if those are the foundations upon which we find this text to be reliable, then we will have missed what the author is trying to tell us. Which is something about God. Yeah, I think a lot something of something about what it means to live life with and, Him. And this is where this is where I would want to. <clears throat> Um, you know, have some have some dialogue. I think with with our listeners. You know, if I could have dialogue with Selhammer about about the use of of history here. I think a lot of a lot of our brothers and sisters have come to judge the Bible by twenty um, first century modern or postmodern um, criteria of what it means for something to be true. What it means for something, which to is be almost true. always scientific in our case, repeatable yeah, not, scientifically. The scientific process yeah. can ratify it. Yeah. And that's not what the ancient authors of yeah. scriptures would have meant by true. And we've seen we've seen a lot of work done in... And that's jarring, to be frank. Yeah. Because we're products of the 21st century. Yeah. Um, but that's most definitely not the standard to which the original authors were, were trying to communicate. And that's certainly not the standard that the original audience was receiving that text in. Right. Um, so... I think um, I think it's worth pointing out that the Bible is more historically accurate than any other piece of ancient literature by a long shot. We've done a lot of work in archaeology and right, um, right. sort of forensic studies and, and apologetics sure. that really do show that Christianity and these sacred texts are reliable. They're grounded in real history yes, and yes. real times and real places. These are and that is critical for evangelicals. That's critical for us as Christians. That, that historicity, it's not made up fables. This is real. Yeah, and the way it's been handed down to us seems to have been preserved, like, miraculously. And yeah. I, think that that's, I think that's valuable. I think that's good. But that's not what makes this text true, with a capital T. Mm -hmm. That's not what makes this text um, valuable and authoritative what is, for you and I. What is, makes, the, what is the thing that makes this text true and authoritative? That it faithfully communicates to us ideas about God and the way he works in this world and the way he works with us faithfully. Wow. Yeah. And well. Yeah. Um, and because of that, we do, rightfully so, have between us an understanding that this text is authoritative. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that's an important word for how we view the text. There's a lot of conversation around um, whether the text is accurate, whether the text is historical, whether it's... Um, um, 
inerrant, right? And and that, that those can be difficult. But I think we can agree that this text is for us, for whatever reasons, authoritative. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what will judge us. This is what will teach us. As you and I attempt to live the Christian life, how are we to do it uh, in community with one another? I can judge you, or you can judge me. But we agree that this text will be our judge. Yeah. Yeah. This text will judge between you and I. Yeah. And which that's requires yeah. an awful lot of devotion to the text. It yeah. requires our best thoughts, yeah. our best creative thoughts, our best attention to the text. Yeah. What exactly is being said here? And that involves a lot of history. That and, involves a lot of. Yeah, yeah there's history. Yeah. It, it involves sort of. Uh, but we got to read carefully, and I mean, we have to read closely yeah. this text. And that makes people nervous because I think, as you said uh, earlier, you know. If I have to also study history, if I have to also study ancient languages, well, now there's this huge distance between me and what the text says. You're telling me I can't just pick this up? You're telling me I can't just pick up the Bible and live the Christian life well? That I need to have right. a college degree? That I need to have, you know, a, a pastor yeah, yeah, yeah. T- telling me what these things mean? How um, would you respond to those things? Because you're trying to get the Bible into the hands of people. Yeah, and oftentimes we have to we have to find creative ways around those those barriers. Uh, like I said about uh, um, study Bibles, there's a lot of footnotes, there's a lot of side comments to give you context to help you understand what the text what, is getting at. Right, what the author yeah. was trying to communicate. And those are those are valuable parts of the Bible. Like you know, like some of our like some of our brothers and sisters and say, I believe the Bible 100 percent from Genesis to the maps. <laughs> you know, there's always maps at the back of the book or a glossary or something like that that helps you look back into the text to understand it more fully. Yeah. Yeah, those are those are good. Those are real. That's a good part of Bible translation. I think it's worth, it's, it's kind of funny to say so, but those are a valuable part of how you and I in community retain the knowledge needed to understand this text. Uh, so there's another element of this too. It seems not just the text itself, but faithful engagement by a community yeah. talking about the text. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So. That's crucial. That, I mean, we don't do this alone. We talk about it. Yeah. And so that's, that's also a, a core part of it. Yeah, I think um, we have to remember that anytime we, we engage the text, anytime we open up the Bible and start reading anything, we bring ourselves to it. We bring our lived experience. We bring our preconceived notions, our under, our priorities, our mood of the moment. Yeah, uh, you know, enables us or disables us from really being open to what it is the Holy Spirit has for us, what it is the text might teach us, and so that's where community. That's why God has given us each other. Yeah, so that we can come to this text together, help each other um, to really press in well, um, to to find out what what does this text mean. So in essence, when you give the text to a new people group yeah. that has never had it, yeah. you're never just giving it to an individual. You're always doing it in community. Always There's in community. Always. Either a local church is being birthed or has been birthed and needs the text to continue to grow. Um, but yeah, that's, and this is one way in which um, I'm really proud of um, the development of Bible translation over the last uh, 50, 60 years. Um, we've introduced a whole lot of uh, checks and balances. So this is no longer just a lone ranger missionary off in the jungle who's who's you know inventing their own google translate look up, look up you know <laughs> this this word in hebrew means this word in your target language it's, right, right. It, it's not that anymore um and that's that's good and that's right that helps us to arrive at translations you're saying it's more team oriented 
Yeah, and that helps. Uh, it's more team oriented. There's a whole lot more resources sure. involved, and it's a it's a um, a Co- broader a, a broader yeah. a broader understanding of how language works. Yeah, and that helps us to work with language much better. Yeah, yeah. and those local people groups. Yeah, Ben, thanks for your work in Antarctica <laughs> and other other continents. Um, Super proud to know you and super thank you for this. And and I hope that we will take this this inspires us to take the words of scripture as seriously as we can and to really devote ourselves to it. Yeah, it's it's really worth diving into. I'm really encouraged by the work you're doing um, in this book, um, helping us all to understand this story well, bringing in the historical context, the linguistic context that helps us to get at what this means. And I really like the way that you are now unpacking it to show us what it means for us. Yeah. Those are hard words. Hard work. Hard work. Thanks, Ben. And uh, we will... I, I tell people, hey, if you want to support Ben's work, go here, but I can't because it's, it's... Here's the question. <laughs> How many nations are you labeled as an enemy of the state? <laughs> Is it more or less than 20? <laughs> I'll take a pass on that Okay. Question. Dang it. I was hoping to get a hard answer. Okay. Thanks, Dave. All right, thanks. <laughs>